we're looking at the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes that are found in the Old Testament portion of your scripture. They're called the Wisdom Writings. And today my message is entitled, Giving Hoots and Life is a Loaf of Bread. And you'll understand why I entitled that as we go, but I'm so excited for this message, so let's get right after it. The first, let's start with Giving Hoots. This is out of Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 and then skip to chapter 6 today. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, hey, come back tomorrow and I'll give to you when you already have it with you. So often we consider sin, this fancy Bible word sin, as the act of doing something evil or something wrong or something bad. But Lady Wisdom points something out to us here. It points out the fact that sometimes sin isn't the act of doing something bad, It's the act of not doing something that's good, okay? When we have the opportunity to help or love or encourage or or care for or bless someone, we shouldn't let those opportunities pass us by because that's just sad. I was talking with a group of leaders not long ago. And we're sharing our moment of life regrets. The, those moments you have when afterwards you think to yourself, what was I thinking? And I was surprised as people were sharing these moments, these life moments with me, how many of them centered around not things that they did that caused regret, but things they didn't do that caused regret. They had a chance to stand up for somebody. They had a chance to speak out against wrong. They had a chance to love and care for someone, but they didn't. And the regret filled their life as a result. So again, the regret wasn't about a deed that was done, but rather it was about a deed that was left undone. Martin Luther King, it reminds me of the famous Martin Luther King quote that I'll put on the board. In the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. When I read these verses, actually, I started to think of an old Aerosmith song. Remember Aerosmith, Steven Tyler, Dream On, Living on the Edge, you know, just me. Okay, whatever. But at any rate, Aerosmith did this song a while back, and it was part of a movie, and it was one of their most popular songs of all time, and it was called, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. And those lyrics rattled around in my head as I was studying this scripture this week, because I thought, I don't want to miss a thing. I don't want to miss a single opportunity for doing good that comes my way. I don't want to miss out on that because I have the capacity, we all do, we all have the capacity to do good and I want to operate at full capacity. So what stops us? There can be a lot of things that stop us from taking up opportunities to do good. For example, number one, our own busyness. Compassion takes time and all too often we live our lives at breakneck speed. We're rushing, we're tyrannized by the urgent and hecticness of our schedule and the urgency of things that we need to get done. So we blow right past doing opportunities to do good because we don't even notice them because we're moving too fast. The other thing that can stop us is a defeatist attitude. Some people don't take up opportunities to do good because they think to themselves, I'm just one person. I mean, how much good can I really do? It's really not worth it. So we think we can't do that much good, so we do nothing, okay? And that attitude is a lie. There's a famous phrase from the Talmud. It's an ancient um, commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, and it says this, save one life and you'll save the world. We don't realize even the smallest good that we do in the world has a far greater impact than we could ever imagine. There are other reasons we could discuss of of things that keep us from doing good. But I think the biggest one is this. 
We're actually, we, we don't do the good that's in our capacity to do because we're scared of other people's opinion of us. What will people think if I help or hug that person? What will people think if I volunteer for that organization or volunteer to help out at that event? What will people think if they know I, I designate some of my giving towards that organization or, or that cause? We are paralyzed, absolutely paralyzed by other people's opinions of us, so we miss out on all these opportunities to do good. I'm currently reading a book that I can't recommend to you. Um, because it contains a certain amount of profanity. Okay, I'm just being honest with that. But I wade through all the profanity to get to the incredible wisdom of this book so I can share it with you. I'll give you a, a picture of the book. Um, it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Bleep. Okay, don't judge, all right? It's actually a good book. But for the purposes of this message, I will henceforth replace the expletive that the author used with the word hoot, okay? And you can take the book off the screen now, Patrick, if you can, that'd be great. Okay, <laughs> so the author's premise is this, that we all have only a certain amount of hoots to give, so we should guard those hoots and not give those hoots to things that don't really matter to us, because if you give too many hoots, too many times to too many things for too long, you'll run out of hoots to give, okay? And when you run out of hoots to give, it leaves you anxious and even angry and stressed out. And the author makes this great point early on in the book. She says, we all will live such richer, fuller lives when we stop giving our hoots away to things that don't really matter to us. And the number one thing that every human being on this planet should stop giving a hoot to is this, other people's opinions of us. We need to instantly stop giving our hoots away to that. We should give a hoot about their feelings because to not give a hoot about another person's feelings is just being a jerk and that's not good. But we shouldn't give a hoot about their opinions about us for several reasons. First of all, you can't control those opinions anyway. And second of all, those opinions can control us. If you give too many hoots to too many people's opinions about you, you will start living the life that you think they want you to live instead of living the life that is uniquely yours to live, that the, the life that God dreamed for you to live. Wow, can you imagine how much better our lives would be? I, I thought about this all week. I thought, how much better my life would be if I could stop giving a hoot about other people's opinions about me? I would be free to do any good thing, any right thing, any true thing, any loving thing that God puts in front of me. It would be epic. And I thought of a great example of a person that, that actually lives their life like this. His name's Dave Tomlinson. You should read all his books too, okay? And he is an author and he's a church leader in England. He lives just outside of London. And a few years back, I've referred to him in several messages, but a few years back, he was asked to um, do the funeral for a, a criminal in England that committed one of the most notorious crimes in the history of England. His name's Ronnie Biggs, and some of you will recognize that name if you've watched the recent Netflix movie called The Great Train Robbery, because Ronnie Biggs organized the Great Train Robbery in England. And so he said, yeah, I'll do the funeral for Ronnie Biggs, because the family members asked him. He caught so much flack from other Christians for doing this funeral. They came up to him, they sent awful messages to him saying, you are glorifying criminals and you are embarrassing God. 
whatever, okay? And by the way, a member of the Hells Angel motorcycle gang found out about this, and he said, hey, Pastor Tomlinson, man, we heard some people giving you flack for doing Ronnie's funeral, and we just want to say, that's not okay with me and the boys, so if they continue, let us know, and we'll take (laughs) care of it. And I thought, scary, but kind of sweet at the same time, okay? Well, Dave did the funeral anyway, because it was the right thing to do, and he had a chance to to love and comfort some people that were in deep amounts of pain and grief and loss. And because of doing the funeral, he writes about how he formed these lasting friendships with family members and friends of the Biggs family. He even ended up baptizing Ronnie Biggs's um, granddaughter afterwards because of the relationships he formed. I mean, how Jesus-y is that? Dave did the right thing, the good thing, the loving thing, and as for other people's opinions about him, could not give a hoot. He truly couldn't, okay? He didn't care. He knew he was doing the right thing. And here's something cool to know. Doing good is highly contagious. My office is actually upstairs, and and it's the youth room also, and it looks out at the park underneath the overpass there. And last week, I was studying, and I was actually writing part of this message, and I looked out, and there was a, a gentleman that was sleeping off a bit of a bender, you could tell, and fell asleep under the overpass. And I watched a young man, probably in his 20s, don't know his name, I didn't even get that good look at him, but he had some uh, box of food. You could tell it was food, and I think it was pizza and some other things. And he brought it over, and he tiptoed up to the guy, so as to not wake him up, put it right in front of him, and then tiptoed back and away. Didn't leave any note, didn't leave his name or anything. I thought, that's so awesome. That guy's going to wake up. He's going to be hungry, and it was a cold, miserable day, and he's going to wake up to this box of food. And watching him take his opportunity to do good inspired me to do the same because I don't want to miss a thing. Aerosmith had it right. They're such a godly, wonderful Jesus-y band, okay? (laughs) So let's move on. My life is a loaf of bread. Proverbs chapter 6, this is probably a memory verse for you, okay? It says this, the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, (laughs) okay? You probably don't even know that's in the Bible, but it is. This is not about prostitution. Hopefully, all of us know that being involved in prostitution is not a good idea. I hope you know that. But this verse really isn't about prostitution. It's about a father warning his son, because he's writing to his son, and he's warning his son away from an activity that would be destructive and shameful in their culture. So the verse really isn't about prostitution. It's about shame. Now, when we think of shame, we often think that, oh, guilt and shame, same thing. No, no, not even close. Guilt is this. It's saying, I am a deeply loved person, but wow, I really blew it by doing this. That's guilt. Shame is, I blew it by doing this, therefore I'm not worthy of love. Do you get the difference? Because it is a big difference. Guilt can actually be helpful. Shame never is. Whenever we're involved in anything that causes us shame, it actually shrinks down our life. It constricts us until our life is so small, about the size of a loaf of bread. Shame compacts you because it's never about freedom and expansion. It's always about shrinking down. A great example of this is the book of Genesis, this creation poem that starts the Bible. And here's Adam and Eve, and they have this face-to-face, joyful relationship, face-to-face with God in paradise. Then they do something they know is wrong, they know is apart from God's plan for their life, and they feel shame because of it. And the next scene is God walking through the Garden of Eden, calling out to them because they were hiding. 
That's what shame does to us. It makes us shrink back and shrink down in our life. It's awful. Now, sexuality just happens to be an area of our life where shame flourishes. It's not the only area, but that's why it's mentioned in Proverbs chapter 3, because our sexuality is where shame flourishes. And historically, the church has not helped out here because the church, believers for years and years, they seem to be afraid of sexuality, okay? They're afraid of sex. One prominent world church leader said not too long ago, told all of the people that follows his particular faith community and, and belief system, said, listen, sex should only be for the purpose of procreation. It should never be used merely for pleasure. I can't even say that without laughing. I was like, I read it and I go, oh, you got to be kidding me. You're telling that to people? I can just imagine the conversations that people um, had who were trying to follow his teachings. I can imagine them going home and saying, well, honey, we can't have sex for pleasure anymore. It's got to be about procreation, so let's talk about how many kids we should have. I'm thinking 97, okay? <laughs> 97, 98, somewhere around there. I mean, it's just absurd. Listen, sex is good, and you can quote me on that. That's like the best line of this sermon, all right? Sex is good. It is. It's a good thing because it's a God thing. God looked at mankind in the Genesis story and said, be fruitful and multiply, and that doesn't happen by thinking happy thoughts. It happens through our sexuality, which happens to be accompanied by quite a few happy thoughts, <laughs> okay? That's, that's how it goes. And in the right context, sex is not a shameful thing. It's quite beautiful, this is why the Bible contains the book of Song of Songs, or some of you know it as Song of Solomon. It's a collection of erotic poetry. And again, Christians all through the centuries are afraid of sex, so they've tried to tame this book. And they said, well, it shouldn't have even been in the Bible. Yes, it should. Then they say, well, it's in the Bible, but it's not erotic poetry. It's actually the story of God's relationship with his bride, the church. It's a metaphor. Yeah, it is, but mostly it's a book about erotic poetry. It's a celebration of sex. If you don't believe me, check out these verses. <laughs> your stature is like that of a palm, and your breast like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breast be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. You need a cold shower after reading the Song of Songs, okay? It's okay, sex is good. Now, there are many areas of our life that can cause us shame, not just our sexuality. That just happens to be a prominent one. But it begs the question, how do we get out from underneath the guilt of shame, because shame can just crush people. It's kind of like one of those funhouse mirrors. That's how I think of shame. You know those mirrors you look into and they're all bent, and it warps your view of yourself and makes you look, you know, like really wide or really tall or all bent and twisted? That's what shame does. It warps our view of ourselves. Our own self-image, our own self-worth just gets all out of whack. Shame screams at us. You didn't just do wrong. You are wrong. You're dirty, you're vile, you're unworthy of people's love and acceptance. There's a way out of shame because God always makes a way out of things like that. And here are some steps to take. If you're taking notes, write these down. They're so helpful. They've been so helpful in my life. The first step is 
stop it. Just stop it. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to a woman that got caught in a shameful act that had to do with her own sexual life. And he looks at her at the end of her conversation and says, look, I don't condemn you. Because Jesus doesn't condemn us. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save and to love. He says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Which is just a nice way of Jesus of saying, stop it. Just stop what you were doing right now. And that's a good word for some of us. If something is causing a lot of shame in our life, we need to examine that and just stop it. It doesn't sound that spiritual. It sounds so simple, but it's so important. Step number two is to get help. The pathway out of shame is so steep and so difficult. I know very few people that can get out of their own shame alone. They need help. There's a movie that uh, many of you saw. Um, it was very popular for a while, Free Solo, and it was about Alex Honnold, who's the best free solo climber in the world. Free solo climbing means you climb alone, thus solo, and you climb free, free of ropes. I got a couple of pictures of him. There's one, and seriously, no ropes, dude. He is not wearing ropes on this. And go to the other. I love the, the view of this one. Check that one out. That's how high it is, and he's got no ropes. Now, the only problem with free solo climbing, it's very inspiring, and I look at it and I go, man, this guy, he really is the best in the world at what he does. But the problem with free solo climbing is most of the best free solo climbers end up dying of free solo climbing, okay? <laughs> because when they get in a jam, there's no one there to help them, and if they slip and fall, there's no one to catch them because they're not tethered to a rope from anybody. Listen. Some of the activities that cause us shame can quickly become ruts and even habits in our life. And try as we might, every once in a while we slip up and we become in danger of falling back into those old ruts and habits and destructive behavior. And we need people around us to catch us when that happens. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. This is an amazing verse. Therefore, since we, notice the language there, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Notice the language there, it's plural. What the writer is saying is there's sins that easily entangle us and cause us shame, but let us let us, let us make this journey out of these sins that entangle us and trip us up and cause us shame. Let us make this journey together. Getting out of shame is a group effort. I've told many of you about my habit with a friend of mine. I confess a lot of my sins and failures and shame to a, a lot of my trusted friends, but with one particular friend, I have a habit of meeting every week, and we call it Say It All Tuesdays, though it recently moved to Thursday, so now it's Say It All Thursdays, and most of the time it's just Say It All whatever day we feel like it. But we get together over lunch, and we confess any struggles that we're having in our life, and that includes things that are causing us shame. So I will go to him, and if I've done something, been participated in something, thought something, said something that caused me shame, I will go to him and confess my shame to him and say, help. And help arrives in the form, first of all, of prayers that I know he offers on my behalf. And secondly, help arrives because of the love and acceptance that he gives to me, which reminds me, if this guy can love me and accept me in my most shameful moments, then surely God will too. We need help to get out of shame. And lastly, we need to listen. A huge step to get out of shame is to listen to the truth about yourself. 
Some believers, some Christians think that it's their calling in life. I don't know why, but they think it's their calling in life to go around to people inside the church and outside the church and point out all of their sins and moral failures to them and then step back as a wave of shame engulfs those people. And they think they're doing God's work. They think, man, I'm really, what a minister I am. You're a minister of Satan. Okay, well, I'm sorry, I wouldn't say that to them. Um, This is a big reason I think some people stay away from church because they think to themselves, why would I want to get up in the morning and go to a big gathering of sin police like this that are going to tell me what a morally bankrupt, totally depraved person I am? What a waste of time. I think I'll just stay home and pull my own teeth because that would be less painful, right? I want to say a few things about this because I'm obviously a little bit fired up about it. First of all, don't join the sin police. Our job is not to condemn people but to love them. It's not to tell them what they did. It's to tell them who they are in Christ. That's a big deal. And secondly, don't listen to any sin police that come your way because you're going to run into them. Don't listen to what they say. Listen to the truth that's spoken to you by other people that love you and by God. I'm going to give you an example of Jesus speaking the truth and speaking loving words to people and how it changed them. And the first comes in Luke chapter 13. Jesus approaches this woman who was bent back. She was hunched over. She was crippled, the scripture says, and she'd been that way for years. And Jesus walks up to her and in healing her says, woman. But it's not derogatory. It's not like, woman, I'm going to heal you. That phrase in the original language means dear woman or actually sweet lady. So here's Jesus. He's healing her of her disease, but she was the picture of shame, bent down, couldn't look people in the face, knew them by their feet, not their face, felt bad about herself, and he refers to her as sweet lady. She knew in that moment she was far more than the sum of her sickness. She was valuable. She was wanted. She was loved. So her sickness left, and her shame left along with it as Jesus healed her. The next one's Bartimaeus. It's a famous story, Blind Bartimaeus, it's called. And Bartimaeus was a blind beggar on the edge of the road, screaming out to Jesus to heal him. And Jesus walks over to him. Now, you got to remember, in this culture, people thought people were blind because of some sin they'd committed in their past life. Specifically, blindness was thought to come upon people who had killed their mother in a past life. So Bartimaeus wasn't just blind. He had a huge heaping of shame coming down on him because he was thought to be this wicked, awful person. Jesus walks up to him, and Bartimaeus' name, by the way, in Aramaic, is son of dishonor or son of defilement. That's a horrible name, or son of filth even, you could say that. So can you imagine the shame he was in? And Jesus comes up and heals him, but when he heals him, he says his name, but he doesn't say it in Aramaic, which Jesus could have. He knew that language. He says his name in Greek, and that's significant because Bartimaeus in Greek means son of honor. So here's Jesus healing him of his blindness and healing him of his shame at the same time. If you don't hear me say anything else today, please hear me say this. Shame can't survive in an atmosphere where truth and love are being spoken. Do you get that? Shame can't survive in an atmosphere where truth and love are being spoken. So surround yourself with loving people and by all means, take time to hear God's voice in your life too. Rumi, the ancient poet, says this, there is a voice that doesn't use words. Listen. Oh, that's such great advice. 
Because when we hear God's still, small voice speaking words of love and truth to us, it pulls us out of shame and it directs us into shalom, God's peace, God's contentment, God's wholeness, God's fullness. And instead of being shrunken down to the size of a loaf of bread by our shame, God's shalom expands us into a much bigger life so that our life is bigger than a loaf of bread. Oh, so good. 